Good morning, good morning. How's everybody? Excited that you guys are here. Thank you very much. My name's Danny. If you've never been here before, I'm one of the pastors I'm going to be sharing with you today. Uh, we're in a series right now called Crimson. We kind of teach in these blocks, and we take uh, different topics or different books from God's Word, and then we, we spend time in those. So this particular series uh, is a study on the book of Acts, and it's actually the name of the series is based out of a verse in Isaiah that says, though I am red as crimson, though you are red as crimson, God says, I will make you as white as freshly fallen snow. And the idea of the series is that within the book of Acts, as Paul and Peter are bringing God's word out into uh, the world, out into uh, existence beyond Jerusalem and Israel, that they highlight often it, within that book their own crimson, their own stuff. They talk about their own struggles, what they deal with, their stains, the things in their life. And they use that as a platform to then share how Jesus changed them. And so that's kind of the, the, the gist of the title and the series that we're in. But today, we're going to sidestep it just a little bit. We're still going to stay within the series, but we're actually not going to stay within the book of Acts. And that's because something happened to me this week. Uh, I've been committed since we planted this church that I would be very authentic with whatever was going on. And this particular week, we got an email uh, from the city with good news that then turned into not so good news. So the good news was they said, hey, come down and pick up your permits. When we went down to pick up the permit to start the demolition and the, the, full, the major demolition and then the, the building project we've all been waiting on for a year, we got down there and they said, actually, you're missing a signature. It might be another 10 days or so. And so we got really excited Sent Tom down. Tom sat in the office, Pastor Tom, he's our executive pastor and leading the downtown project, and sent out an email internally to the staff and said, man, so excited. The city just said, come down, grab your permits. We're going to rock this. I think the email said, uh, I think, what was the title of the email? It said, here we go. That was the title of the email. And then Tom came back, and I've talked to you openly, right, about how it's okay as a Christian to pout, how that's okay. How, <laughs> how God can handle us when we pout and how we need to be more authentic with him and a little less religious. N not disrespectful, but a little more authentic. Well, Tom comes around the corner of my office like this. <laughs> and I said, what's wrong? And he's like, they said it's missing a signature. And we both just stood there like. And I said, but I have a really good weekend plan full of celebration. We're going to tell the church about about the, the permit and about the building and about this thing that we've prayed for that God has answered today. And he's like, no, we aren't. <laughs> and so uh, that was uh, Thursday, I think, Thursday, Friday. And I had a, a weekend to do, which I thought was going to be all about that. And so I said, all right, God, you tend to use this stuff. So, so what do you want to do with this? And so I just pouted. I was really frustrated because I have a lot of great plans. And I had strawberry lemonade in order to celebrate for this, which we're still going to have anyways, I guess. So uh, I, I sat in it, uh, and I decided to do what I know to do, which is just study. Uh, not for the weekend, but just for me. I was disappointed. I was kind of discouraged. But I also knew God's doing cool stuff, and we're still within a few weeks, and it's all good, and everything's happening. But I just sat in my discouragement because I've been preaching that for a while. Be authentic before our Lord. He can handle it. Okay? So I did. And eventually, I pulled out a little book on my shelf. And it's a little book uh, by a dead author. Most of you know I like all the dead authors. Uh, they don't email you when you steal their stuff, so it's good. <laughs> what are they going to do, right? <laughs> so, so this little book, it's an older book, actually. This came uh, in the library from, uh, from the church when, uh, when we were able to uh, become one family. And it's a Tozer's book. It's called The Pursuit of God. And 
Uh, this book is, uh, is a great book printed in 1948, and I hadn't really read the whole thing front to back. I'd flipped through it, but I was just kind of discouraged. And so I said, well, I'm just going to spend some time with me. And I got to a chapter in the book that really, really blessed me. And I was like, this is awesome. My wife came in to check on me. How's it going? I know the sermon's going to change. Everything's got to change. And I go, yeah, but I don't know about that, but I got to, this really blessed me. So we decided to preach that. And I said, but it doesn't really fit in the series at all. And I don't care. <laughs> because the reality is uh, it blessed me. And I know for a fact, as I've been sharing with other folks and the 9 o'clock service, I think it's going to bless you. So I'm excited to share with you what I've read and stolen. And I think that it will, uh, I think it's going to meet exactly the needs that we're wrestling with here today. Amen? Let's pray, and then we'll talk about Jesus a little bit. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to just be in this place, to, to come before you with all of our stuff, to, to be present, to be real, to be authentic, to be on the journey. Thank you, Lord, for every person here that you've brought. You orchestrated their steps, and you have a message specifically for them in this time of their life, whether it be encouragement or discipline or... Uh, 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 a calling to move forward or, or step back or step aside. Whatever it is, God, you are meeting our needs and you are bringing glory to yourself while bringing healing to us. And so I thank you for this room, for these people, and for, this, uh, for the way that you, you bless us. We thank you, Father. We step aside and just listen to you now with all distraction laid down. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the chapter is chapter 7. If you want to write it down, you can read the, uh, get it straight from the, the resource. Chapter 7 of A.W. Tozer's The Pursuit of God. And the name of the chapter is The Gaze of the Soul. The Gaze of the Soul. And it kind of starts off with this idea that we as Christians, we have a fairly decent understanding, we think, of what faith means. Uh, this whole thing in Acts, this whole Crimson series, is really about Peter and Paul uh, bringing faith Okay, to the world, faith in, of course, Jesus Christ. So the question then is, as Christians or as people here seeking today, as you're just kind of checking stuff out, what exactly is faith? How do I know if I have it, if I don't, or if I want it? Almost everyone who preaches or writes about this subject of faith seems to have much of the same things to say concerning it. So let's just kind of click those off first. First off, most people think faith is believing a promise, which it is. Most people understand faith as taking God at his word, which it is. Faith is believing the Bible to be true and stepping out upon it. This is a typical sermon on faith, three solid points, lots of scripture to back it up, and you're supposed to absorb this, apply it to your life, and be better. The rest of a usual sermon's explanation is usually taken up with stories of people who had their prayers answered as a result of their faith. Uh, these are answers are most directly gifts or of practical nature. Uh, things like health, money, physical protection, or success of some kind. That normally is where the sermon ends. And then you evaluate your life to decide, do you have enough of those characteristics within your life? And so do you have faith? It's actually a really poor theological understanding of faith. And this is because in Scripture, there is practically no effort made to define faith from a philosophical standpoint, what it actually is. Outside of a brief definition... Uh, in Hebrews 11, we really only know a few things about faith. Let me give you the definition. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. But in that verse, faith, faith is defined functionally, not philosophically. 
We are also told from another philosophical standpoint what faith means. Romans 10, 17. Faith is a gift of God, and faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So we understand what faith acts like. We understand even what faith looks like. And I think for the most part, because of the three earlier points, we could probably pass a written test about what faith is without really understanding ourselves how we're supposed to embrace it. Now, Jesus himself talks a lot about faith, but he does it in a very unique way. He does it by citing an Old Testament story. I want to read to you that story. The story is in the book of Numbers. And it's when Israel, who was called out by God from slavery, from bondage, was following Moses through the desert. We know this story. They wandered around the desert, and they became hungry. And so God provided manna for them, and then he provided water from the rock. And after a while, this got very boring, which sometimes when, we're, when we walk as Christians, we get bored. We want things to happen when we want to happen. I don't want to wander around. I want to accomplish something, hence the building permit that I wanted last Friday. After a while, we get discouraged, and in our discouragement, we begin to make our own plans or complain about the plans of God and what it is he's doing. That's exactly what happened here. Let's read it together. Numbers chapter 21, verse 4. From Mount Hor, they, the Israelites, set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and Moses and said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe the worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. I like this particular passage because all of us as parents know the point that the Lord was at with these particular folks. This is when your daughter's walking through the store saying she's starving, and that now because she's starving, her stomach hurts, and you turn to her embarrassed and say, I'm going to give you something to hurt about in just a second. I'm going to give you something to cry about. The people say, we can't stand it. We're going to die. We hate this. This stinks. And God goes, fiery serpents. I would love to be able to do that at some point in my life. It's one of my goals. Bunch of complaining people, just fiery serpents come in under the doors. And I'm like, now you can complain. That's exactly what happens here. These people complain, and God sends them something to complain about. And it changed their hearts quite quickly within one verse. Verse 7, and the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This is a epic story but a little confusing first off you have God saving people then you have people complaining to God about how he's saving them then you have God saying okay you want to experience what's in this desert most likely what God did was just stop keeping from what what was ever in the desert from them and so suddenly they begin to experience what was out in the desert which was a whole lot of snakes these snakes then bit people. They went to Moses, said, we messed up. Please, God, bring back your protection. Bring back your provision. And what God does is so very important for us to look at because I think sometimes this should be applied to our own lives. God doesn't actually remove the snakes. He doesn't even stop the snakes from biting. He doesn't even stop the snakes from potentially killing them. Instead, what he does is direct their attention to something that God told Moses to make, a, a bronze serpent, a bronze snake, that when they look upon the snake, they will be healed. 
How many times in your life, or mine, have I said to God, I don't like this situation, change the situation. But instead, God says, no, you are to look to me, you are to look to scripture, you are to look from the situation, and so through me and faith in me, find healing. But what I want is God to take out the snakes. Now, I've been preaching this for a while now, so I don't know how many more weeks I can say it before it gets old news, but Christians got to get better at taking punches or bites from snakes. This is my point. The punches, if we are truly stepping out into the world on behalf of Christ, will never cease, ever. Your marriage is never going to be easy. If your marriage is easy, you two are playing games. I just want to tell you that right now. Because I am married to a nearly perfect woman. And yet she's still... (sighs) Sometimes is a bit of a fiery serpent. (laughs) So if my wife's nearly perfect, I can't even imagine your wife's. And if I'm a nearly perfect husband, I can't even imagine your husband. The point is, of course, your marriage is never going to be easy. Your story is never going to be easy. If your story's easy, you're just being passive. You're just not engaged. That's like saying, you know, you slept for eight hours and nothing else happened in the world because you were asleep. Lots of stuff happened. You were just asleep. How many of you in this room are asleep in your marriage right now? You're asleep in your faith. You just kind of go through life and everything's rote and everything's the same. And you complain and you whine about the stuff you can't change. But the stuff you can change is too dangerous and too hurtful. And so you don't really do much about that anyways. And then after a while, you just close your arms or walk into the office like Pastor Tom did, just defeated by this world. (laughs) This is us. This story is us. We want the snakes to be removed. The snakes we brought in. The sin, the the decisions, the consequences that we brought in from our own complaining. But God is teaching us something profound about the essence of faith. The essence of faith here. And he wants us to see it, but it's hard. So Jesus himself highlights it for us in the New Testament. See, this story is perfectly interpreted by Christ himself, who I believe is a better authority than you or I about what this means. He is explaining to his hearers how they may be saved. They want to know what it means to have faith. He tells them that it is by believing, that you must believe. Then, to make it clear, he refers to this incident in the book of Numbers they would have all known. This is in John chapter 3, verse 13 through 15. This is what he says. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So he's tying himself to God, that he is here on behalf of God. And as Moses, listen to this verse, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in him may have eternal life. I want you to notice right away that for Jesus to look and believe were synonymous terms. To look and believe were synonymous terms terms looking on the old testament servant according to jesus is identical with believing on the new testament christ we are supposed to understand of course that israel looked with their external eyes but we are called to believe with our internal soul with our heart jesus is saying and i'm going to put this on the screen if you want to know what faith really is faith is the gaze of a soul upon a saving god this is what christ is saying that Faith, in its essence, is gazing upon a saving God. It's looking to Jesus. It's not not being bit. 
It's not not being blessed. All these people, and I've done this before, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but you're not sick because you don't have enough faith. It's garbage theology. It's just not true. It's just not true. These people in the Bible, they were looking at serpents still getting bit. So it seems like if they would have looked, the serpents would have went, well, I'm not going to bite you. No, that's not what God directed Moses, nor what Jesus is highlighting here. They're saying sin is going to happen. Destruction is going to happen. We said a month or so ago, doom happens. People get sick. People get hurt. Life falls apart. The point is not to avoid all the falling apartness. The point is to look to the one who rid you of the poison falling apart brings into your life. You're married to a flawed person. You're dating a flawed person. You're pastored by a flawed person. The point is not to hope for a better pastor or better spouse or better boss or better government or better politics. The hope is to hope for better eyes to see God who rid you of all the poison that this world brings. It's a beautiful statement, partly because it's very simple. It's very, very simple. To confirm this, though, because I want you, not that I would think if Jesus said it, it's enough, but I'll try to add a little more for you, because it should open up and unlock all kinds of verses in relation to what faith really is and how many times the authors of the Bible are pointing you towards this reality that really faith is nothing more than a faith, uh, a gaze, gazing soul upon a saving God. Look at this verse, Psalm 34, 5. Those who look at him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Those who look at him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Psalm 123. To you I lift my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so your eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Oh, I got more. Matthew 14. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down. This is Jesus on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fishes, what's he do? He looks up. He looks up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And there was more fish and loaves through faith for everybody. Once again, it's looking. It's gazing into the eyes of God or in at the cross of Jesus who was raised up that brings healing and power to us. It is summed up. For us in the Hebrew epistle when we are instructed to run life's race. We are instructed to run life's race. Listen to this, Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We are called to believe upon the name of Jesus Christ. Do you realize all it's asking you to do is look? Just look. You get bit by a serpent, you look. You get bit by life, you look at Jesus. This is what faith is. From all this, we learn that faith is not a once-and-done act, but a continuous gaze of the heart. In this way, faith looks out instead of in, and so the whole life falls into line. Now, here's where it gets really interesting from a practical standpoint. If faith is the gaze of the heart of God, and if the gaze is but the raising of inward eyes to meet the all-seeing eyes of God, then it follows that this must be one of the very easiest things to do in our Christian life. And I think that that's very true. The first thing we get to realize is that since believing 
is looking, it can be done by anyone. Anyone. Anyone can look for God in a situation. So suddenly it's not complicated to have faith. It wouldn't it be just like God to make the most vital thing easy and place it within the range of possibility for the weakest and poorest of us? To make it right there in front of us and obvious. God has seen to it that the one life and death essential thing about following him can never be subject to breaking or tampering. No one can mess this up. You get bit and you look at any age from anywhere. This is what Tozer says about it in his book. Equipment can break or get lost. Water can leak away. Records can be destroyed by fire. The minister can be delayed or the church burned down. All these are external to the soul and are subject to accident or mechanical failure. But looking is of the heart and can be done successfully by any man standing up or kneeling down or lying in his last agony a thousand miles from any church. <clears throat> Faith is looking. It's gazing upon a God who's already watching you. I prayed at the beginning of the service. Some of you didn't even know it. Your whole world's been orchestrated to be here today, to hear this message. Not from me, from him. Right now, your heart is tearing apart because you want to believe, but you feel like there's a bunch of hoops or religious stuff you've got to go through. And I'm here today to unpack all that on behalf of Jesus Christ. All he wants you to do is look back to him. He's already looking at you. You've been looking at your situation or your struggles or your addictions or your story. God already knows the end of your story. And he already knows that he is the answers you've been searching for and thirsting for. All you have to do is look. That's all any of us have to do. Second, since believing is looking, it can be done anytime. No season is superior to another season for the sweetest of all acts, Tozer says. God never made salvation depend upon new moons or holy days or Sabbath. A man is not nearer to Christ on Easter Sunday than he is any other day. As long as Christ sits on the throne, every day is a good day, and all days are days of salvation. What excuses do you have? What excuses do you have? You know the bites are coming. You can buy into some sort of religious system or magic or something outside of God's word to start to, and believe that there's a way in which you can find some sort of life arithmetic to avoid a certain summary of dysfunction, and the reality is suddenly, surprise, Sickness, surprise, accident, surprise, governmental dysfunction, surprise, your story changed. And all of a sudden, the only person that you can blame is you because you're the only person leading your life anyhow. You realize you are the worst person in your own life, right? Nobody lies to you more than you. Like, no one has ever lied to you as much as you, to yourself. Oh, it'll be fine. I don't really mind. No, my feelings aren't hurt. No, I'm good. And your other self's like, I'm not good. My feelings were hurt. That's not fair. That's not right. You shut up. No, you shut up. Right? I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy looking, but it's true. Some of us got really good at not doing that with our lives. But the reality is, when you're in charge of yourself, then you're the only one to blame. That's why church is so hard. That's why community is so hard. Because it's really, really tough. You want to have a measurement or a way in which we, we, we look at people in order to evaluate whether or not they're equal to us, when in reality God says, well, can they look at me? Because if they can look at me, then they're equal to you. Yeah, everybody can look at you, God. That's right, because everybody always is who I love. This is our calling. This is what we're supposed to do. 
Tozer illustrates this with this last quote of his when it comes to us as the church getting this down, this idea of looking or listening or focusing upon God in spite of what's happening in the world. He says this, and it's a famous quote. A lot of you have probably heard this quote, but you didn't know it came from this chapter in this book. He says, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. The body becomes stronger as its members become healthier. The whole church of God gains when the members that compose it begin to seek a better and a higher life. This is the very typically taught Kessid principle of the difference between harmony and cacophony. The difference between everybody working together to accomplish this single thing read by one great conductor who is Christ, who is the cross, who is the one lifted up so that we can all tune our lives around him, meaning that we live in a harmony according to our gifts and our talents and our calling versus a cacophony, which it sounds like dishes pouring forth from a uh, spilled shelf, just splashing upon the ground and no rhyme or reason causing damage to everything around them of no great value. How often do you live your life feeling in harmony, not only with other people, but with yourself. But when you within yourself can look to Christ, suddenly, first and foremost, here's what happens. There's harmony within you. Everything within your story is synced up and lined up with him. Everything within your story says that he is the one that will keep your body purified. He is the one that can forgive your sins. He is the one that can make new the things that are old. And yes, the bites will come. And yes, the punches will come. And yes, you will bruise and you will bleed. But you will be looking towards the one who every single time brings healing and hope to your life. That's why a bunch of you are here. Because you need healing and hope in your life and you have ran through all the hoops and you've accomplished all the things and it is empty and it is lonely because it is still out of control and it feels purposeless. Once there's harmony in your life and you're looking towards Jesus, this is such a great thing. What happens next is that everybody else who's also looking and in tune with Jesus, in tune with the one who is lifted up, then suddenly you become part of a family that plays by different rules, a family that is tuned to the same conductor, a family that moves from cacophony and hate and shattered and brokenness into a place of harmony and hum and sound and music. And suddenly you have a part in this universe you didn't even know you could play and people around you see your life they hear your life and they say that's incredible i want that what is that because your eyes are looking at jesus not them they see all the circumstances around you and they don't understand it but they see every time you get bitter punched you get back up and you smile and you move forward and you love and you engage with your heart of flesh that can be pierced and hurt and so they with their heart of stone ask you and so you without ever taking eyes off Jesus can tell them I'm not looking at the stuff you see in my life I'm looking at him and that makes the stuff you see in my life bearable and slowly but surely through the story of how you lived and the sound your life makes people's eyes stop shifting off of you like I hope and I pray they shift off of me and they begin to see Jesus who is lifted up and suddenly they move in alongside pick up their calling and begin to play along and then they impact people, and they impact people. And suddenly the universe is in harmony again because people are living their lives full of love in spite of darkness, full of light in spite of hate, 
They respond opposite and backwards and upside down because the cacophony thinks it's in control, but the harmony is really the biggest sound. I'm like a spoken word poet now, apparently. <laughs> I just love what he does and I love what he offers and I hope and I pray that you don't see me, but you see him. I hope and I pray that you are filled to the brim with all that he offers you. And so what I want to do is I want to pray for those of you who have never accepted him. I want to ask everyone's eyes to close. If you've never accepted Christ as your center, as your source, I'm going to ask that you pray this simple prayer. Say, God, it's me. I'm finally here. I'm ready, Lord. I see you lifted high, and I want to make you my focus. I want to make you my purpose. I recognize that you died on that cross to fill the gap between my sinfulness and the holiness you offer. And I pray, Lord, that you would forgive me. Make me part of your song. Make me part of your story. For others in this room, with all the eyes closed and heads bowed, Lord, I just pray over them a prayer of returning. A prayer, God, of coming home. A prayer of realizing they've blamed others enough and it's time, it's time, God, for them to stop looking at everybody else but instead look to you. You may not remove the pain. You may not remove the distance, but Lord, you can come and you can bring healing and you can bring hope and you can bring truth. And so I ask, I ask, Lord, that you would awaken us to this place you've called us to be, this place of faith and hope and love. Awake, O oh sleeper, in the valley of bones, born dead in sin, wandering alone. Awake, O oh sleeper, you go your own way, thinking pleasure is freedom, but covered in chains. Awake, O oh sleeper, from dust you were made. This life is a vapor, and it quickly fades. Awake, O oh sleeper, you try to live right, but darkness prevails overcomes all your might. Awake, O oh sleeper, before all is lost. Trust not in yourself, but blood on a cross. Awake, O oh sleeper, and turn to the one 
who loved so amazing, surrendered his son. Awake, O sleeper, in the valley of bones, rescued from sin, no longer alone.